Mark's still going around? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we are in 1 John 5, 6 through 13, and I named this, I have a new name. In the outline, it's something else, but now my name is Can I Get a Witness? That's my name. Can I Get a Witness? This is really about John's testimony. Um, In uh, 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote, Nothing is for certain except death and... Thank you, taxes. Of course, a wise man like Ben Franklin knew that there was really other things that you could be certain of. And a Christian knows that there are many certainties, um, especially um, in spiritual truth. Christians are not, should never be afraid to say, we know. In fact, this whole epistle is written about knowing. It occurs in five chapters. The word no occurs 39 times in John's letter and eight times in this closing chapter. Man was created with a deep desire for certainty. Now, if you see your kids, you know that's to be true. We have a bent. Even though they break, they they don't like routine. They really do love routine. (laughs) Um, We want to know that we know, that we know, that we know. There's a certainty that gives us security. Um, and, uh, And God knows that. He made us like that. So John is returning back to the beginning of the book when he mentions his testimony. Now, you have to remember, I'll say it one more time for anybody that missed the first part. John is writing in somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D., He is the last of the apostles that is living. Everyone else had been martyred. Um, The New Testament, as we know it, except for the books of John, is pretty much like everyone is talking about it. Like if you want to read the end of 2 Peter, Peter talks about what Paul writes, and he equates them as scriptures. Okay? So so a lot of the, the New Testament was going around, and they knew that these were God's holy scriptures, okay? But here's John adding his, um, what the Holy Spirit has given him to complete, in essence, the canon. Because he, like I said, he's like the oldest of the old. To be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, to be necess- his, probably his cousin, we think he was first cousins with Jesus, Um, to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a nice title that was. Um, He, to be first a follower of John the Baptist, and then as soon as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, John said, See you later, John. I'm going here. Um, He, this is a guy that, if anybody knew Jesus, it was him. He was the only disciple that was there, um, at the crucifixion he was the and he was the first disciple it says because we just did this in easter sunday that believed he looked in the tomb and peter said not sure what's going on there and john believed now he wasn't didn't get the whole scoop yet but he believed so i mean this is this is my guy here this is my guy, and he knows that he doesn't have all that many years left, so he's telling us, and his testimony is really, 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 really super-duper important, okay? So let's go back to 1 John 1, 1 and 2. He opens his epistle, and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life, that's code name for Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So remember when we studied that in the very beginning, we said it's almost like a courtroom and John is a witness. And John is, they have asked John his testimony. And so John, this, is, this book is his testimony. Well, he's circling back and we're going to end because now we're getting to the end. Next week is our last lesson. But really, um, this is the, he's going to actually bring his whole book to a climax in our last verse, which is verse 13. So... Remember, um, John is kind of up, in, he's in the courtroom, and I, I looked on my phone, but I couldn't find the theme to law and order, because I wanted to play that to you. Because every, like, everyone knows it. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I, I don't, anyway, I thought it would be so fun, but I couldn't find it. There's a lot of things named law and order <laughs> that are not that. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so at the close of this grand epistle, he's returning to the same courtroom to testify one last time. And I'm going to read this again, and I want you to listen for the word testify, because I want you to hear that this is it. This is what he's saying. Um, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony, this is the testimony of God that he, was born con- that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony of God that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and his life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so look on your outline. And basically, um, I'm stealing this outline sort of from Daniel Atkins, who's ex- uh, expository on 1 John. I have, it's, he's not dead, but he's still good. Um, he, he and David Platt and some other smart people have written uh, this expositor's uh, uh, commentary series, and it's very good. Um, anyway, Daniel Atkins writes, and this is in your notes, in these verses, a courtroom setting is easily imagined. The Greek word martis, translated to testify or testimony, occurs no less than 10 times. John places in the dock witnesses, so the blank is witnesses, who will testify to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God's son who gives the gift of eternal life to all of those who trust him. These witnesses have different but complementary, that's the word you're looking for, complementary perspectives. And their witness is comprehensive, building a powerful 
case. So John makes his argument drawing attention to the career of Jesus. From his baptism to his crucifixion, he invites other people to give their testimony. Uh, Other people, other persons of the triune God give their testimony. Uh, He extended, uh, you know, obviously we see the spirit there. um, And God himself testifies. um, And he invites us to stand at the bar as well which is kind of interesting. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, So I want you to know he's extended an invitation to all of us who have been converted, who are believers, to, in essence, have a testimony. And this is the testimony. Remember when Jesus says, when he's leaving, he says, you shall be my what? Witnesses. Witnesses. See, because we have the testimony now. So this testimony that he's talking about, we get even get to have, and we get to share it, and we get to also stand up for Jesus and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, so you, and again, open-ended, free-minding, thinking people should at least examine the evidence about Jesus. They may be surprised how strong the case we have for the verdict that Jesus Christ was God's son come in the flesh. Um, so John 1.14, his gospel says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the father's side. He has made him known. And the Greek word is exegete. He has exegeted him. He has ex- He has shown us what really God looks like. So the first one, uh, the first witness he calls to the stand in his testimony is the water. So if witness number one is the water, and that refers to the baptism of Christ. Verse six says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. Okay, so he came by water and blood. Just like he mentioned in 1 John 1 when we just read it, he's talking about real things because Jesus was real. Um, and you have to realize that at this point in time, what was, what was um, the biggest heresy that was attacking Christian thinking was Gnosticism that said Jesus just seemed to be real. That's doceticism from the Greek word doses, which means to seem. And there was another brand of that called Serinthianism, and that was from this guy, Serinthius, actually lived, was, lived along with John. In fact, one day they tell a story that John came to a bathhouse and Serinthius was in, and John walks inside and he sees Serinthius and he runs out saying, Everyone flee because Serinthia is in the house and it, it might fall down. <laughs> John was kind of a little feisty. This whole idea of John being meek and mild is really not consistent with anything I've ever read. But anyway, so this Serinthian guy believed that, um, that Jesus uh, was a real guy, real person. And then at his baptism, the Christ, the spiritual thing came down and landed on Jesus and then he walked 
And then at his crucifixion, the spirit thing left. So this whole idea denies the atonement um, and, the, and, the, and the incarnation, which again, we know because we have our little sheet, that's one of the seven, that's two of three of the seven, uh, the seven fundamentals of the faith. So anyway, so Jesus, so, so actually John makes a point of talking about the flesh a lot because he, he wants everyone to run, realize that Jesus did come. He was a real person. He, you know, Thomas said, he's the one that's recorded in his gospel. Thomas said, unless I put my finger right there, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus came back and said, here, Thomas, here it is right here. Come on, buddy. Come on, touch me. Because Jesus was real. Um, so real stuff, real people, real things, just like blood and water are real, so is the coming of Jesus. So John also, um, okay, so I talked about that already. Okay, so now this idea of the water and the blood, let me just say, this has kept many scholars busy for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> and everybody gets to have an opinion. You know, if you have a room full, if you have five, if you have five, five Baptists sitting at a table, you have six opinions. You know that, right? <laughs> so, so they've got lots of opinions about this right here. So uh, one opinion, I'm going to just give you a bunch of opinions, and then I'm going to tell you what the consensus is. Uh, one opinion was that... Um, that the water speaks of um, baptism and blood speaks of receiving communion. In other words, the two ordinances of the church. Uh, Luther and Calvin thought this. But it doesn't really deal with the word. It says, came by water and blood. That doesn't really fit with that. And then Augustine said, oh, it's water and blood. Describe the water and the blood that flowed from Jesus' side. Remember at the cross, uh, John 19:34, um, and they're all about that event. Um, yet, if this was John's meaning, again, how is it that he came by water and blood? That happened at the end of his life, right? So that's another thought. Then uh, still others believe that water spoke of Jesus' first birth, the waters of the womb, and the blood speaks of his death. Nah. Okay, here's what... Here's what most of, and honestly, when you look at, it's so cool that we have 2,000 years of opinions to look at here, but um, most of, I, I mean, the first century church, honestly, they were the ones that were dealing with the apostles, and the apostles had disciples, and those disciples had the disciples, and those were called church fathers. And these church fathers, Tertullian is one of them, they, they also preached this, the word. And so what did they think is kind of an important thing. Well, Tertullian um, was John's apostles, apostle, apostle. He says that John means the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his, resur of his crucifixion. And FYI, John MacArthur agrees with that too. Um, let's look at that little, because basically they're saying this is the beginning of, of Jesus' messianic ministry and the end of Jesus' messianic ministry, the, the water and the blood. Um, certainly, let me just read for you Matthew 3, 16, and 17, which Matthew records the baptism. And notice who is present. Um, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the 
spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So certainly his baptism was a big deal. All three of the members of the Trinity were present. When Jesus was baptized, let me just say it was kind of unusual. And John even said, I don't want to baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, I want you to baptize me. Okay, because that's you have to do it. Um, but you have to realize he's not being baptized in repentance of his own sin, like you know John was doing up to everyone, up, come and be baptized, repent and be baptized. But he did this because Jesus wanted to identify with sinful humanity. Um, when he came by water, it's saying, it's like he's saying, I'm one of y'all. And that's an important thing for us to realize um, when he's calling us to abide in him and him abide in us. He understands who we really were because he came like us. He took on human flesh. Okay, so witness number two on your outline is the blood, which is the crucifixion of Christ. So on your outline, you should write the blood, the crucifixion of Christ. Kenneth Wiest, my, uh, he's my Greek scholar, says, Water refers to Christ's baptism, which is the beginning of his messianic work. Blood refers to his bloody death on the cross for the sins of the world. These two incidences in the incarnation are singled out because the baptism Jesus was formally set apart for messianic work by the coming of his Holy Spirit and by the Father's audible witness, and because at the cross, his works reached its culmination when Jesus said, it is finished, finished. to Telestai. It is finished. The debt has been paid. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because he had to. And some people say that they murdered Jesus. Don't ever say that. Nobody murdered Jesus. Nobody could murder Jesus. Jesus was God. He was life himself. He gave his life up. He gave up his spirit, it says. Nobody, nobody did that. He would have hung on that cross for 16 million years if he wanted to, okay? He gave it up for us. He laid his down his life to identify with sinful humanity and save us from our sin. And he came by blood. Um, so he could stand in our place as a guilty sinner and take the punishment our sin deserved. Now, if you have any kind of Old Testament background, you just have to know that this was a picture of what the priest did all the time. And when Jesus and John, he, John goes to the head of the class because John was, uh, I, John, not this John, but John the Baptist was the first one to say, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist totally got it. Okay, so he came by blood. We don't like this right now. This is not very fashionable. They don't, in fact, churches are not singing songs about the blood, you know? Shame on them. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. So, um, okay, and again, he mentioned the blood specifically for all the Gnostics who didn't think, <laughs> that, that thought the Christ spirit had already left. No, he came by water, he came by blood. Um, 
So uh, Daniel Atkins writes, the second witness that the apostle calls, calls to the stand is the crucifixion of Christ. This is represented by the word blood, which occurs three times in, these, in verses 6 through 8. The work of our Savior was initiated at baptism, was finished by his bloody death on the cross. Jesus himself said, from the cross, it is finished. When he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, his father again provided significant witnesses concerning this event. So what were those witnesses, you might say? Let me tell you. Number one, there was darkness across the land from noon to three o'clock. I'm going to read this in a minute. The curtain of the sanctuary was split from top to bottom. Now, that's a, it's a huge, the, the, the Holy of Holies separated this huge veil. It was as thick as your palm. So don't think that this was like a little thing that, oh, so, uh, that was, no, it ripped from top to bottom. Such a beautiful truth there. There was an earthquake, the third witness. Uh, fourth witness, a number of Old Testament saints were raised and appeared to many as the first fruits of the resurrection life to all who trust in Jesus. And then my favorite witness is the centurion. <laughs> the centurion. Now, this is a Roman guy who's in charge of 100 men. So he's, he's one of the smarter ones, okay, that are running around in the army. And he's looking at this. He was called to watch this all unfold because this is what the, they told him to do. And he says, oh, my gosh, this guy was the son of God. Let me read it because it's all written in Matthew 27, 50 through 54. Listen for the witnesses, okay? And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of their tombs after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now that would have been a little freaky, but that's what it says happened. Then the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake that took place, and they were filled with awe and fear and said, truly, this was the Son of God. See, there's witnesses, okay? And John is saying, remember all this, guys? Came by the baptism and came by the blood. So uh, Jesus of Nazareth was not some sort of spirit or God, some special agent that came um, down at the baptism and abandoned at the cross. He was and is the eternal son of God who entered this world in time and space and died as a propitiation. Now we've talked about propitiation because John's brought it up two times already. In 1 John 2, 2, he says he is the propitiation, the atonement for our sins and not only ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His death was not an accident. It was not an act of martyrdom. It was divine. It was a saving substitution for sinners with redeeming value and worth. Um, you know, 
we it's we just had Holy Friday, and um, I would love for us to have a church service about this. <laughs> um, some other um, denominations have a have a, a service, or they even have fasting on Friday, um, because they're we're all about participating in the resurrection, girls. <laughs> Not so much about the death. And, um, and that piece. And other denominations honestly do it better than we do. Uh, but basically what happened, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That wasn't a good swap. It was good for us, but it wasn't good for him. Okay, the third witness on your outline is the Holy Spirit. Uh, verses 6 through 8 says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For those are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So the third witness invited to testify that Jesus is the Son of God is actually one of the third part of the Trinity. Um, it says in verse 6 that the, uh, the Spirit provides a consistent and continuous witness that Jesus is the Messiah. And he does so because the Spirit is truth. And Jesus said the exact same thing, by the way, in John 15, 26. He said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will bear witness about me. It is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. The, whole, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the true person of Jesus, even as John, John promised he would. Um, in John 16, 14, Jesus says, he will glorify me, talking about the spirits, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Because we know the spirit guides us into all truth. Spirit is truth. And what is more important on a witness stand, ladies, than truth? If the judges could read like Jesus and read the hearts of men, they don't even need one. He would say, okay, you, 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 to jail. You, 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 free. <laughs> he would know. But the spirit bears witness to the truth. And we are also called to be witnesses. But I'll get to there in a minute. Okay. The consistent message of the Holy Spirit is always, here's Jesus. If I had my big red finger, I would point. Here's Jesus. He's pointing. Jesus. The threefold, this is in your notes, the threefold witness of the water, blood, and spirit agree. This reflects the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19.15, where the Bible says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Um, so that your blank is three witnesses. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, it's interesting because in the Greek, this is kind of an interesting way they say it. Um, but basically, what they're saying in the Greek is these three converge on one truth. 
which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh. Okay. These three, all powers, converge on Jesus. Okay. So um, now I have to talk a minute about some translations. Does anybody have a translation that puts a sentence that I did not read in? Probably not. But for years and years and years, there was a sentence that was added here. And we call it, they call it the Johannine comma. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and what sentences puts in there is, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. Okay, so they add that whole little comment in there. And honestly, I could spend 20 minutes explaining how all that happened, but you just have to know that there's like a million manuscripts and all the earliest ones, and we know that the earliest ones are the most valid ones because they happen closer to when it all happened. Um, don't even include that. And Tertullian and all the church fathers never included this. When they were um, dramatically and vigorously and vociferously um, defending the doctrine of the Trinity, they never used this verse. And they would have used this verse had it had been in there. So anyway, it's a comma. Most everyone realizes now that it was added and nobody really believes it. I mean, it's true, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't, John didn't write it, okay? It was probably added later. Um, and honestly, when the Greek scholars look at it, it like in Greek, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Like textual criticism has just, you know, said, no, that's just not, that's just not right. Okay, so I just had to tell you about that in case somebody had it in their Bible. But you all are reading good translations. Um, okay, witness number four is God. Verse nine, if we receive the testimony of men, which everyone does, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Skip to verse 10b. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony in the testimony that God has borne according concerning his son. Okay, so if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Everyone every day receives witnesses of men according various things. But what John is saying, if we have confidence, if we watch the news and think that's true, which nobody does anymore, but <laughs> just saying. But we used to believe that the news was true. That was when the news was who, what, where, when, why. Now it's all about opinions. But anyway, I'm not even going to go there. So, <laughs> so, but, you know, basically we watch the news, see what, how, what was happening, what was true, what was right. And John is saying, if you believe men... Certainly you should believe the creator who says all over his word that this is my beloved son. He says it out loud audibly. He says it at the transfiguration. He says it at the baptism. I mean, come on. How, what does God have to do here? He said you should certainly believe because God is much greater. Uh, and, but here's the thing. John doesn't want us to believe in blind faith. Our faith is based on a reliable testimony. 
And here's the most reliable of all the testimonies that would be God. <laughs> okay? Um, Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> Just in case, if you have to worry who to believe, always believe God. Because God is, God, that is who he is. He is true. Um, okay, so he who does not believe God has made him a liar. When we refuse to believe on Jesus, we reject the testimony that God has given his son. Therefore, henceforth, we're calling God a liar. Now, we don't really talk about that with our unsaved friends, but that's really what's happening. Um, when we refuse to believe on Jesus, we reject his testimony. Um, John here exposes the great sin of unbelief. Most everyone who refuses to believe in God, in what we believe in as the real sense, you know, as what we said is pisteo, the believe, rest, trust in him, um, we, most of those people don't intend on calling God a liar. But I just have to tell you that's what's happening, okay? Um, Spurgeon says, the great sin is not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ um, is often spoken very lightly and in a trifling spirit, as if it was in hardly a sin at all. Yet according to this text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of Scripture, unbelief is the giving of God the lie, and what can be worse? Now I have a quote for you, because uh, one of my commentators adores Spurgeon. So here's another one from Spurgeon that I think is pretty funny. Um, what if someone says, well, I want to believe, but I can't. This is in your book or your outline. So this is Spurgeon's answer. Hearken, O unbeliever, you who have said, I cannot believe. But it would be more honest if you said, I will not believe. So will is your blank there. The mischief, here, the mischief lies here. Your unbelief is your fault not your misfortune. It is a disease, but it is also a crime. It is a terrible source of misery to you, but it is justly so, for it is an atrocious offense, offense is the word, against the God of truth. See, God is true. He wrote the book. He made the world. It is what he has Everything he does is true. He cannot do, he can't be outside the realm of truth. And to call Jesus something other than his only begotten son who died for the sins of the world, to call him anything else is saying that he, the God of truth, is a liar. And that's kind of a big deal. That's what Spurgeon says, okay? So um, he says, then you have maligned his character and given him up for a lie. That's what he says. So witness number five is your personal witness. Personal is the word. So call, John is calling here all of us to the witness stand. Every one of us. It's kind of cool that 2,000 years ago he wrote this and he's calling us currently to the witness stand. But that's what he's doing. It says in verse 10, whoever believes in the, in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has 
born concerning his son. But let's get to that point. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself, the testimony in himself. When we believe on Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit as an inner confirmation of our standing with God. So when John is talking about how it is that we know that we know that we know, because this whole book is about assurance, he's calling us to the sand and saying, don't you, don't you know, little one, that Holy Spirit in you? Don't you know? Don't you hear him talking to you? Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And uh, Weiss talks about that, and he says, that is, our human spirit, energized by the Holy Spirit, gives us the consciousness that we as believers are children of God. You know, because here's why. You really do know. In your quiet times, in your walk with him, you don't. You wouldn't be here if you didn't think that it was real, that it was true. You know. And that's a big deal. Atkins writes, John now does a very interesting and strategic thing. He ties together our outward confession of Jesus as the Son of God to the inner witness we now have within ourselves. What we confess with our mouth, God makes real in our hearts. So Romans 10, 9 and 10 let me read it for you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Um, the internal witness of God's spirit in the heart confirms the child of God has the right to believe that Jesus is the son of God who alone gives us this gift of eternal life. Now, here's a quote for you. Um, the internal, internal testimony or witness is the personal presence of God in us. So presence is your first word. And it is beautifully balanced and complements the external and historical witness of baptism and crucifixion of Jesus all witnessed by the Holy Spirit. A past experience can be helpful, but it is today's testimony, today, today's, or this present-day testimony that provides the confirmation and the assurance that God wants you to enjoy and that your very soul longs to have. Uh, Daniel wrote that, not me. I just want you to know that you know. You just forget. We have spiritual Alzheimer's many, many times. And we're always asking, what have you done for me lately, Lord? And we forget that we should make altars just like he, just like the, um, God told Joshua to get those guys when they cross the river Jordan, pick up a stone and put that stone over here by the bank. And why do you pick up the stone and put it by the bank? So when your children ask you, what are the, you can tell them about the miracles of God. I'm just telling you, you have more witnesses than you even know you got to just remember okay he has been so faithful if you have kept a prayer journal your prayer journal is 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 the witness you've prayed you prayed you prayed you prayed and god did it's it's his witness and you have that witness so don't let anybody talk you out of that ladies um 
Witness number six is the eternal life or life in Christ. Verses 11 through 13, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what is the, uh, so witness number six, eternal life in Christ. So Daniel Atkins writes, John calls his final witness to the stand to testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And this is a fascinating witness. The witness is, quote, eternal life. The connection between having the son and giving life is so essential that John will mention the son seven times in verses 9 through 13 and five times right here. Okay, here's a quote for you. Eternal life is a God quality, God kind of life. It has a particular, that's the blank, particular character or essence, as well as a never-ending duration. And I've said this before, because this was kind of new to me, because I always thought eternal life, that all happened after I died. Uh, but no, 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 no. He says he's come to give us life and have it to the full. He said that's why I'm writing in chapter 1, remember? Um, having Jesus equals having eternal life. This is God's testimony and gift. This life is in his Son. And again, it is found in no one else. In fact, to have the son is to have life. Now, I got some three quotes here because I just thought this was so awesome. Because I really want you to understand that what the testimony is, is your joy-filled life. And this joyful life that you have, this life of love that you give to everyone else, is a huge witness. It's a huge witness for God. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times... We're like, we're like the guy that says, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm pretty good under the circumstances. And, you know, the pastor says, well, what are you doing under there? <laughs> he has come to give us life and life having it to the full. Um, so anyway, so let me tell you what Joy, James Boyce writes. He says, John's reference to eternal life has the es essence of salvation um, as the essence of salvation, carries us back to the opening verses in his letter. Because he said in the opening verses, this is what his testimony was, that the word of life has happened. The word of life, okay, remember? And that this word of life was revealed in Jesus and who is himself the life. Eternal life is not merely unending life, therefore. Okay, here's in your notes. It is the very life of God. What we are promised in Christ is a participation in the life of the one who bears that testimony. This life is not to be enjoyed by everyone, however. This life is in Christ. Now, if I had had more time, I would have gotten everybody a participation ribbon today. You all make fun of participation ribbons, but we are to participate with him in this life. And this, again, go back to what, our, what it says on your cover, abiding. This is all about us living life in him, participating in him. That's what this eternal life is supposed to look like. John 
1 John 1, 2 says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That life is Jesus, and we have that life. John Stott writes, Eternal life is emphatic in this sentence, but the testimony is not only objective to Christ as a life giver, but subjective to the gift itself. In other words, he's got it covered on both ends, okay? Eternal life, this is in your notes, is a free gift which God gives to those who believe in his son. And the gift of eternal life is the experience of fellowship. Fellowship is the word with God through Christ. So this eternal life is what John is writing about. Remember, that's what he said in the very beginning of this book. He said, I, I, I'm writing these things to you that you have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and the Son. Remember the treehouse. God has a treehouse. The, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in that treehouse enjoying each other's fellowship. And when Jesus came, they sent a rope down. And that rope is Jesus Christ. And it's a red rope because it's by his blood that we get to come up into fellowship with him. But here's the thing, not like the joke, we are all there together. And what is happening in the churches in America today is we are all like, we're like, I want to do it by myself. And, I, and it's the, about the appearance of looking spiritual rather than being spiritual. And it's about, it's about the, you know, I can't have any problems in my... Let me just tell you, there's heartache in our church because people put on a show and they, they don't think they can be who they really are. And Jesus says, I'm real. I'm flesh. I'm blood. I came by water and by blood, and I want you to be as real as I am. There, who, who are we going to pray? I see it all, okay? Anyway, I'm off the topic. So he calls us into the treehouse to fellowship with him and with each other. Um, let me read you two more verses. I've read these before, but I want, again, they click sometimes, you know. I'm hoping they click with you. Um, John 17, 3, Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Later on in verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's our witness. Can I hear, can I get a witness? Amen, amen. So John said, um, this is the testimony of his heart. Um, let me just say, this is, when Jesus says he is eternal life and he is the truth, I mean, this is what he, he's not, this is not the first time we've heard this, okay? Eternal life is in God's son and may be found nowhere else. He says very clearly, if you have the son, you have life. If you have not the son, you have not life. 
It's very, it's, it, and again, if I had my little paddle, we'd have the contrast, right, right here. So John, uh, let me just back up and say it again. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. He's the rope. He's the truth. What's really real? And he is the life, eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John eleven twenty five through 27, Jesus said, and this is to Martha at the right before he resurrects uh, Lazarus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. This is a huge, this is just as, this should get as much, Traction, as we always talk about Peter's confession in Matthew 16, you know, who do you say I am? You are the Lord, you're the Christ, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mary, I mean Martha, she totally got it. And that was, you know, she got it. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Okay, so let's, I want to read 1 John 1, 1 through 4, yet one more time. Because as John is finishing this book, he's sort of making a do loop. Because remember, John loves loops. And, he's kind of, and I want you to hear what we just talked about in relation to this first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked on, gazed on, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. i.e. I, Jesus. And this Jesus was made, appeared. He was made manifest. And we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Why? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. Amen? Okay, we're not done. So God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So here's what it's all about. (laughs) It's all about Jesus, (laughs) just in case you're wondering. And living in Jesus is the evidence of eternal life. When we abide in him, when he abides in us and we abide in him, we are in that sweet place, ladies. And we know that we know that we know that he is real, he is truth, he is righteousness, he is light for us to share and salt for us to give to this crazy world that needs this so badly. So he moves on to verse 13 Because verse 13, some will call that the climax of the book because this is really his conclusion. Now, he said four things. Four times he said, I write these things to you. Remember, he said in the first chapter, he said, I write these things to you that you may have joy. Then he said in the second chapter that you might not sin. And second chapter, he said that you don't have false teachers or something like that. And then this is the fourth one. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the of the Son of God, that you may know, experientially know, that you have eternal life. 
So John Stott moves on to verse, thing, verse 13, which we really will cover next week, but it's sort of the summation. It's the sum, you know when they have, uh, they ask the lawyer and say, what's your closing argument? <laughs> this is John's closing argument. Um, this is the summation of the testimony and all the witnesses, the six witnesses that he just gave. He tells them, um, now let me just say it's interesting because the gospel, John gives us the reason why he wrote the gospel and it says it in John 20, I think something, he says, these things I've written to you that you may believe in, in Jesus, the name of Jesus, and in believing you may have life in his name. So that's what the, that was the reason why he wrote the gospel, so that we would believe. Now, now he's writing to believers and he's saying to them, I'm writing this to you you believers, so that you know. And why do you have to know? Well, you're going to have to know because it's a good chance that you might die for your faith because that's what's happening right now. And you got to know that you got to know that you got to know. Um, so his letter, on the other hand, was written to believers, and John's desire for them is that they may believe and receive. Uh, no, that's, that was the gospel. But having believed that they may know that they have received and therefore continue in to have currently, presently, eternal life, that they may possess it here and now as a present certainty of the life they have received in Christ. So what he's saying is that I want you to know all of us to know because this is a testimony that's been translated and moved out 2,000 years later that today you may sit comfortably, know alike, in the ark of assurance with great joy. Amen? Amen. Okay.